so Acts chapter 17 this morning, we began it last week as uh, Paul went through Thessalonica and through Berea, and in both places was chased out of town. We've seen some things as we've gone through Philippi and, and Thessalonica and Berea, all about the power of God. And you know, the, the second journey of Paul is really very exciting. Because it's it's breaking us into new territory and, and new new ways. You know, one of the, the big reasons that it has this excitement is because we we see the gospel first reaching into to societies like our own, um, very much like our own, and we'll see that particularly this morning as we come to, to Athens. That is societies that aren't um, grounded or don't have their, their foundation in monotheistic morality uh, and, and belief, morality um, of belief, secularism sort of around. And so that's what we see here. It's what we see in our own, own society. And the gospel is reaching into these, these cities, these towns, these people of these very different backgrounds and religions. Exciting because we see that the same gospel message presented to very different contexts. So as we go to each city we see Paul present the gospel and the, and the gospel is there but we see how he he sees the people and he understands where they're at applies the gospel where they they uh, they find themselves so Paul's work here if you come to Athens we'll read in just a moment and it's a very familiar passage to, to many in Athens it's very helpful because it shows us how to be faithful ministers of the gospel in very broad contexts, places that well really are very much like like ours. You know, for many, when we talk about sharing the gospel or presenting the gospel to people, the first thing that that often comes to mind and say you need to share the gospel is well we jump right into the idea of Jesus died for your sins, he arose again, and you need to believe Jesus, and Jesus will save you. And then sometimes, as we've spoken before, we feel that, that pressure that we need to give the whole message of the gospel all in one sitting. We just have to say everything from beginning to end so they have it all. But as we look here in, in, in Athens and see what Paul will do, we learn we don't have to give every detail of the gospel every time. In fact, we don't even have to start with Jesus. And that may seem a little odd. You don't have to start with Jesus because here we're going to see that Paul doesn't start with Jesus. But we always end up there. And Paul will lead us through that as we, we see this. Let's, let's read through. We're going to read from verse 17 of Acts 17 or verse 16, I should say. Uh, Acts 17, verse 16. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he brings to them Jesus. And the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine of which you is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. 
Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. Now, Areopagus in the Latin translates to Mars Hill. So that might be the more familiar way we know this, Mars Hill. And said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, bread, and all, all things. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and their boundaries to dwell. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of our own poets have said, we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these kinds of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance to this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagus, and women, and a woman named Damaris, and others with That's right. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word again, and we see the example Paul sets here again on how to share and present the gospel. We pray you would encourage us that we would be able to see reflected in this our own society and, and the help and encouragement to us to be able to minister, to be able to share the gospel with those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Some have looked through this and suggested that this is Paul's great failure, that he came to Athens and in Athens uh, took a different path and shared the gospel in a different way and then we get to the end there in verse 34, it tells us that there were only a few who believed and who got saved. And he said, well, this was his great experiment about trying to do something different and fail. Well, that's not what we see here at all. Um, actually, what we see is that gospel success isn't about great numbers, and great conversions, but it's about faithfully revealing God and the gospel. Letting God do the work through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sometimes that will be like in places like Philippi, where, where many will come from various different ways and the church will be started. But sometimes it'll be like Athens, where it will be few and far between. We've seen the power of God in cities before. Athens kind of balances the perspective for us here in the preaching of the gospel. That is, as we come into a secular world and present the gospel, 
we can't always expect it to be as as glorious and as overwhelmingly fruitful as some other places, even some other times. So Athens helps us to understand how to minister the gospel, and it helps us how to minister the gospel in Australia. If we look at what Paul did here, we find striking similarities between Athens and Perth, and what it's like to live here and share the gospel. But a minister in places like Athens or Australia, we need to get to our foundation, the God of the gospel that we preach. And that's what we want to think about this morning as we look through this, is looking at the God of the gospel. We're going to start kind of make our way to some of the main structure that Paul uses here. And the first question that what so many ask in places like this is, is there a God at all? Is there a God? Most people ask that question and, and have a thousand different different answers. But like we find here in, in Athens, so we find in Perth, people are looking for the answer to that question. Is there a God? We're looking for the answer to that question. Now, I'm not here to give all the answers or to, to have the, you know, the greatest ways to reach a secular world. I, I'm not that smart. There are smarter people who know how to look at society and understand these things. I just want to help us understand a little bit of how Paul reached and what that can mean for us in, in our society. But where do we start? Is where do we start when we have this question of, is there a God? And we start with a society that, that really doesn't have any foundation in understanding the God that we serve and the God that we worship. You know, immediately as we come to Athens and we see where Paul was at, we see a a wide variety of people that are ministered to here. So to answer the question, is there a God, it takes the looking at it in different ways and presenting it in slightly different manners. Because as Paul comes in, there is the religious and there's Jews there, and then there's Gentile uh, worshippers who may be interested or are kind of following along with the Jewish thing. We've seen them as we've gone along. So there's religious, there's those who are more reverential in what they do, and then there's other particular aspects. So the religious, you, you come, there's going to be people like this anywhere, the, the religious people who are concerned with spiritual issues. And they are concerned with morality and what is right and what is wrong and how that works out. Concerned with justice. And they have some sort of, uh, of understanding that there is a higher being or a higher order that directs these things to which we need to give allegiance. Here, it's the Jews, and they have the foundation of of the God of Israel, and that's them. Then we see you know, the like God fears here. There are those who maybe aren't so religious but reverential, because they may follow some of the same patterns and the same moralities, and they have the same understandings on certain things. They like the idea of God. They like some of the morality issues and the justice issues that may come out of following uh, a God. They may even like aspects of, of Christianity, but overall are non-committal. Then as we come here to, to Athens, we see he mentions two particular uh, religious groups. These are two of the three major ones that found their place in, in Athens in the world. And the first is the Epicureans. The Epicureans were essentially pleasure seekers. Their religion or their philosophy was to, to chase pleasure and to avoid pain at all costs. But they didn't, they didn't believe in an afterlife. 
They believed that the purpose of this world was to find joy and pleasure and satisfy self. In some ways, we might call them hedonists in, in that regard. They also believed that uh, the world happened by chance. So they followed a, an early form of what we now know as evolution. Evolution didn't begin with Darwin. It had been along for a long time in various forms. And the Epicureans and the Stoics as well, and most of the Greek and Roman world at that time, believed in some form of the world happening by chance. So that's where they came from in their understanding of the world. They were basically indifferent to the gods. So although the cities would be filled with gods and, and the things that they worshipped, they really weren't worried about the gods. They, they thought that the gods were essentially just distant beings who were irrelevant to Earth. That is, they were far off. They had didn't really understand what was happening in the world, didn't really understand humanity. They were just irrelevant. So they didn't really pay much attention to the gods. Today, we might call uh, Epicureans by the term agnostic. Is this, if, the idea of God is there, but not really worried about it, don't really care one way or the other of whether there is a God. But for the most part, they don't really have any influence in my life, as far as I can tell. So as Paul comes into places like this, it's going to, to shape the way that he needs to present the gospel. Epicurus, who was the, the leader of the Epicureans, is considered one of the great philosophy uh, influences still influencing philosophy and modern thought today. And just like Paul ministers here and comes in the midst of, of these Epicureans, these people that have these beliefs, we live amongst Epicureans today. People who, who love nice surroundings, who like the comforts of the world, who you know, enjoy their big houses and their fine wines and their nice furniture and their new cars, they're not necessarily against God, but just don't really care. God doesn't really seem to have a place in life. He's just whatever. So the people in Athens are really no different than the people in Manly, Scarborough, Orient. Pretty much the same. Then there are the Stoics that Paul comes across here. Now, while the Epicureans were pleasure seekers and they pursued the, the pleasures of life to avoid any kind of uh, pain. The, the Stoics were rationalists and fatalists. They believed the greatest virtue of life is self-mastery. To master yourself, to control yourself, to be above pain. There essentially was to get to a place where you, you could live life and not be hurt. Be strong. Build yourself to be a better they were pantheists, which essentially is that God is everywhere. He is in everything, and everything is God, including us. And so that's why they had so many gods and worshipped so many different things, because essentially everything was God in one way or another. Stoicism is still very popular today. Well, we don't necessarily call it that all the time. It's still very popular today. The self-help gurus that flood the markets of our, our TVs and, and our, our bookstores and, and online that are all telling us how to do these things, these, these gurus, they're all building on the same stoic philosophies of past. Master yourself. Be better. Find some way to harness your inner good, to connect with 
the, the world and rise above it. It's the same thing. The pantheism is still a great religion of our society. We can easily see it. We take the time. We can easily see the very same things that we see in Athens reflected in our very own society. Now, knowing these ideologies and these understandings help us to understand where people are. And you don't have to be an expert in philosophy and human behavior. Well, that's, that's not my point this morning to, to come to understand the human mind in these depths. Because most people don't. Most people don't wouldn't say, well, I, I come from the line of the periods or this. Most people don't understand what they are, where they are. They just know what they, they believe. And they built this belief system over time. But understanding the basics can help us cross the divide between the different worldviews. How can we, people who believe God and Jesus Christ, connect and bring the, that gospel message to people who either don't really care or who see God as everything? How can we cross that divide instead of just talking past each other and finding one another? Using Jewish history and the Jewish scriptures to start, well, for Paul, it wasn't going to really work. They didn't understand any of that. They didn't even know it. In fact, that's what caused some of the confusion at the beginning, is at the beginning when he's speaking with the religious, with the Jews, he's talking about Jesus, and he's talking about the resurrection, and the Greeks didn't understand it. It didn't make sense to them. It caused them confusion. They call him a babbler. This must be some God we don't know yet. So it sounds a lot like Herbert in 2021. We all worship. Everyone, every person on this earth worships. Worship is in our nature. It's who we are as people. And so just like Athens, or the, the, and there are many ways of worship in different ways. We all worship. It's not always aimed correctly, obviously, and often not seen as worship. But people will do things and they'll be, well, that's not worship. But essentially it boils down to, to worship. Worship involves really what we what we give our time to and what we give our attention and our affection to is worship. So in one way or another, every single one of us worship. So the question to ask is not do we worship. The real question to ask as we look at people and understand where they're at trying to get the gospel is what do they worship? Because we all worship. The question is, what is it that we're worshiping? What is it that is taking our time and our attention and our affection? And like the Greeks and the Romans, it can be many things and it can come in many forms and many different ways. It says in, in the verse 22, as Paul begins, that he noticed some things and he says there in verse 22, and Paul stood in the midst of the area of this and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things, you are very religious, or you are superstitious, that is, you are worshippers, and you are very deep in your worship. Luke, uh, in verse 21, notes something that historians also note about the Greeks and Athens. Because for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were, were there, spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing, is they were always looking for something new, something uh, 
uh, to, to grab onto, some new way to explain their experience or understand their life. There's some new insight into what was going on. And so they would easily believe new things. As things would come into town or, or yeah, worshippers would come in and, and teach, they'd, they'd grab onto those things and, and pull them out. So they, they were known not just to easily believe things, but to be easily deceived. If you could convince them that this was something worth believing and that it could help their life or give them a benefit in what was to come, then they would grab onto it and could easily be deceived by it. Today, despite all of our learning and all of our education and all of our advantages, we really aren't any different here. You know, I heard a, a, a very popular podcast post this week, uh, and he was ranting on this week about how ridiculous Christianity is. This very same person who was ranting on about how ridiculous Christianity is, is also very vocal about his belief in aliens. Now, there is more evidence for the belief in the gospel than there is in belief in aliens, even from a scientific perspective. So we'll grab on and we'll, we'll do it even very high and very uh, notable uh, scientists and, and, and physicists have the same problem. We still have our gods. They look different, sound different, but they're the same. We, we have our gods in environmentalism. Now, we have our gods in capitalism and, and in moralism and in social justice. We have our gods in science and our gods in family and our gods in sport. And the list could go on and on and on and on. We worship. We are a people who worship. Athens was filled with idols, and so is Perth, filled with idolatry. As Paul comes into Athens and he sees this, says at the beginning of, of our text there, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols or full of idolatry, only given to idols. It moved him. It disturbed him. It, it, it even upset him and angered him. As he looked around and he saw the idolatry in his city, greed. We see the same thing in our city. We look on, on Perth in our own environment to see the worship and have, have it move us the way it moved Paul to see the, the desperation of the people around us. So with all these people who are looking for answers, Paul begins by revealing the answer to their question. Verse 23, as he continues his thoughts, he says, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. He's going to go through and through a number of ways he's going to talk to us about who God is and present God. And one of the ways he does that in the beginning here is he tells us that God reveals himself in nature. God reveals himself in nature as the, the creator, as the one who is all around. All of this worship shows you are searching for something. Paul describes it like this. He says you're groping around, hoping to find him, even though he's not far from 
and our society and our, our city is no different. People all around us are, are blindly groping for things to worship for something that is going to satisfy. And God is not far, but we're groping all over and missing all the time. He is not far. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The creation shows his handiwork. The universe is interwoven with the attributes of God. He says in Romans chapter 1, because what may be known of God is manifest to them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The very fact that God reveals himself in nature, that we can look and we can see the power and the glory of God in nature, God says there is enough of his uh, glory in nature to see as it is now to leave us without excuse. God reveals himself in nature. God also reveals himself in the Bible. So God didn't leave us to just decipher the world and to look around and see the glory of the mountains and the trees and the valleys and, and everything in the intricateness of, of this universe and leave us to kind of decipher through it. He communicated with us so that we could understand who is this God who did all this, the most powerful, almighty God who created all of this. Despite what people will tell you, the Bible is a valid way to prove God exists. It is. The Bible assumes that God exists because it is his communication. God reveals himself in nature. God reveals himself in the Bible. And also God reveals himself in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the most complete expression, the most complete evidence that God exists. John tells us, and the world word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory, and the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the question that first comes is, is there a God? We can know that there is a God. He reveals himself. So the next question to answer as we through is not only is there a God, but what is he like? So if there is a God, what is this God like? How should he be worshipped? What should we know about him? Some things that Paul helps us to understand about getting to know God is, one, we left God. God did not leave us. We left God. The Epicureans, as so many in our own society, believe that God was distant, irrelevant, and had no place in the world, that he left us or that they left us. The truth, though, is that we rejected God. He didn't reject us in that, that way. In Romans chapter 1, after Paul told us that we have no excuse by seeing God in creation, he says in verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor will thank him, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was gone. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made by corruptible men, birds, four-footed animals, things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, to exchange the truth of God with the lie 
worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. All our worship, whatever form it comes in, if it isn't to the true God, all of our worship is simply an attempt to replace God, to find what we have been missing. But we don't truly see God. Verse 29, Paul says to us, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art, man's devising. We must see God as he is, not as we want him to be. Like the Greeks and the Romans, too many still try to explain God and find God in human terms and in human experience. Story I've told many times, a song we'll sing in just a moment. A song, Praise You the Lord, the Almighty, the King of Creation, written by Kim Deanne. And, and maybe you remember the story that told it. As he walked through his area of, of Germany, there was a place he particularly loved. It was a, a valley that ran through near where he lived, and he would often walk through there and spend time there. And that, that hymn, Praising Praise to the Lord, he wrote while sitting in that valley. It became so familiar to the people there how much he loved that valley and how much time he spent it. And when he died, they named the valley after him, Neanderthal, or the Valley of Neanderthal. Because as he walked through that valley, he saw the glory of God. He worshipped God in that valley. Because we know the story. Some years later, people would be, be in there looking around and digging, and they would find human bones there and claim it to be a missing link and call it Neanderthal. Two people, two groups of people, would be in the very same place, see very different. Neander would see the glory of God, and others would completely miss it. Understand what God is like. There is only one God. There is only one God. This one God is creator. Verse 24, Paul says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. The Bible says that God created all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, everything and everyone in it. That has huge, huge implications for us. If that is indeed to be true, and this is where the real nitty-gritty of the worldview is between a God who creates and the ideas, even like the Stoics and the, the Epicureans, and the evolutionists today that there isn't a God who creates comes down because if there is indeed a God who creates that has huge implications on me, massive implications. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 14 says, Indeed, heaven and the highest heaven belongs to the Lord your God. He created it, so it belongs to him. Also, the earth with all that is in it. That means that everything belongs to God and humanity, we're told, is his crowning glory. The beauty of the earth. It means that we are purposefully created, not part of some impersonal force. That means we are not our own. We are not in control of ourselves. We are created by a good, sovereign, 
loving creator. There are implications to what we believe about the foundation of the world. There is only one God, one who is creator, one who is self-sufficient. Verse 25 says, nor is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. If this is true, then I can't bargain with God. I can't say to God, well, God, if you do this for me, then I'll do that for you. Because God doesn't need what I have to offer. There's nothing that I have that I can bargain with God that says he's going to make him go, well, you know what? That's a good deal. He created it all. He has no need of anything that we can give him. It is already his. He knows everything. He's created everything. He owns everything. What do I have to offer him? The only thing that I have to offer him is worship. He is no weak, sentimental little fairy god or genie. There is only one God, one who is creator, one who is supreme. Verse 26, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the places has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. God rules in the affairs of men. Revelation 19 says, I heard, as it were, the voice of the great multitude as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. All people are created equal under God. God appoints the bounds of nations. He rules, he guides everything about humanity. God is supreme. There are no other gods. No. God did not create us because he needed fellowship. He wasn't lonely. God wasn't lonely. But well, I need someone to talk to. So I'm going to create humanity so that I can have someone to talk to. God created us to bring him glory. There is only one God, one who is creator, one who is self-sufficient, one who is supreme. Finally, one who is holy. God is loving and compassionate and good. He is also forgiving. And anybody that has any kind of concept of a God, one of the first things you, you ask them about what would God be like, and they say, in some form, is that God is forgiving. But to be forgiving means there must be something to be forgiven. If a God is going to be forgiven, what is he forgiving? What is the point of that forgiveness? We're guilty of offending God's absolute perfection, defying his sovereign rule over us, falling short of his glory. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. That wouldn't be right and it wouldn't be good. In a book we studied together some time ago called uh, What is the Gospel? The writer of that book, Greg Gilbert, says that this very uh, uh, and point says, true, We want a God who's going to deal with Hitler properly. Nobody wants a God who declines to deal with evil. They just want a God who declines to deal with their evil. That's really what we want. We want God to deal with everybody else's issues, not our own, to accept us as we are. 
Is there a God? Yes, there is. What is he like? He is creator, self-sufficient, supreme, and whole. Can I know this God? Well, Paul tells us we can. Verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everything. Because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Firstly, we need to admit that we need. He can be known, and we need to admit that we need, we can know him. You know, Paul reminds us in verse 27, says, you're, you're wandering around worshiping all these things, like groping around in the dark, trying to find God. He's not far from you. He can be known. For in him we live and move and have our being. We can know God. He has revealed himself. He's revealed himself today. But we must admit that we need to know him. And then we need to accept his invitation. We are invited to know God. That is repentance. It's that invitation to know him that is turn from going your own way. Turn from blindly groping in the dark and finding nothing and open your eyes to see the God who is standing before. There is judgment Based on God's righteousness, judgment is coming. John tells us in John 3, or Jesus says in, in John 3, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. God must judge sin. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus died to pay for that sin. To meet the demands of this holy, self-sufficient, glorious creator. To make a way for us to repent and find forgiveness. God does exist. And I can't prove to you this morning and everything, and that's not my point to, to prove that this morning, but simply to lay the foundation of what we can do. God does exist, and the evidence is all around us, and he has revealed himself to us. He is seeking the people around us, the people who are worshipping a thousand other things. Showing love. In the God of the Bible, we find purpose. We find satisfaction. And joy. As Christians, we're told to be salt and light in this world. That is doing our part to reveal God. Paul was stirred by what he saw. He walked in and he looked at this city and he was grieved and he was moved and he was angered by what he saw. And as he spoke to them, they called him a babbler. But it's essentially saying, dude, you're, you're an amateur. You're talking about stuff you don't even know about. You're being ridiculous. You will see the same thing too. The response, of course, is mixed. 
some believe and some want to hear more and others are absolutely adamant they don't want to hear anything that Paul is just just out of his mind but that doesn't make Paul a failure it doesn't make us a failure when we share the gospel and, and we see these mixed responses where people say, yeah, you don't know what to Or, yeah, let me hear a little bit, a bit more. You may not have seen multitudes saved like other places, but he was faithful to the message that he laid the foundation. Some wanted to hear more. You know, not every conversation you have about God and about the gospel is going to produce disciples. But that may open the door for further conversations that lead us to talk about Jesus. So in our efforts to share the gospel, be patient and be faithful. Every little bit God can use. Let's pray. Finally, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Paul as he comes into a place very much like ours. Help us to be stirred by what we see around us. The, the false worship in, in our own family members and our friends and our neighbors and our colleagues. And to be moved by that. Help us to, to think, to see where they're at, to, to understand as best we can with your power and your guidance be able to minister the gospel to them that they can see that God is great, glorious creator of all things. That we are rebellious and sinful. And that Jesus is the one who bridges the gap between us and that glorious God. Help us to find opportunities to be able to lead people to respond in repentance and faith. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.